the ones that are in the middle of the series called the Satan and Demons because it will help frame how we move into and through this passage. We need to be aware of the worldview that biblical writers have and in spending, instead of spending a lot of time on that, this video does a really good job of um, framing how we're to understand Satan and the demons and then moving forward in confronting them. So we've been learning about spiritual beings in the Bible, and I still have a lot of questions about the bad ones. Well, great. Let's talk about the Satan and demons in the story of the Bible. So let's start in the beginning. In Genesis 1, God creates a beautiful, ordered reality out of darkness and disorder so that life can flourish. He appoints humans as his representatives to rule over all of it, and seven times God calls it good. Yeah, I experience that kind of goodness often in the world, in things like beauty and truth, love and generosity. But in Genesis 3, we meet a creature who's in a state of rebellion against his creator. We're not told yet why or how he rebels, but he's on a mission to ruin God's good world for other creatures. This thing is trouble. Yeah, this creature is the Bible's first portrait of evil. It distorts what God has purposed for good, ruining and dragging creation back into darkness and disorder. So the humans join the spiritual rebel, which leads them back into chaos and death. And from this point on, the human rebellion is interwoven with a spiritual rebellion. And the biblical story shows how this happens over and over again. Okay, but wait, we're getting all this from a slithering snake? Well, there are clues in the story that it's more than just a snake. Remember, Eden is a high place where the earth and its creatures overlap with heaven and its creatures. So the snake could be a spiritual being. Well, Genesis 3 points in that direction, and then later biblical authors fill in the picture. Like when the prophet Isaiah has a vision of God's heavenly throne room, he's surrounded and being praised by the spiritual beings. Yeah, these are the cherubim around God's throne. But when Isaiah sees these creatures, he describes them as seraphim, which in Hebrew means snake. Ah, so the snake is like a former staff member in God's throne room. So why is he talking to the humans? Well, the prophet Ezekiel understood this figure as a spiritual rebel who didn't want to live under God's wisdom and authority. He wanted to be God. All right, that's the same temptation the snake puts before Adam and Eve. Exactly. He says they could rule the world like God, but by their own wisdom. So they're all kicked out of the garden. Yeah, God says this rebel will now crawl on its belly. Where does it go after this? Well, the biblical authors offer subtle clues where this being is at work behind the scenes, animating division and hatred between humans. They also use a variety of images to describe this being. It's a snake or a sea dragon or a dark desert creature or the king of death in the grave. He's also given many titles like tempter or the evil one or the devil, which in Greek means the slanderer. But his name is Satan, right? Actually, no. Satan is not a name. It's another one of these titles, which is why in Hebrew it has the word the in front of it. The Satan means the adversary because he isn't for anything. Rather, he's anti-everything working through lies to drag us back into darkness and disorder. That's intense. Now, what about these other spiritual rebels in the Bible called demons? What are they all about? Okay, so remember the concept of God's heavenly staff team, the divine council, or the sons of God. In the Hebrew scriptures, we're told that some of these rebelled too. When did that happen? Multiple times, actually. 
After the snake comes the rebellion of the sons of God in Genesis 6. We're told that they have sex with women who then give birth to violent warrior giants. Oh right, the Nephilim. These are probably the strangest characters in the whole Bible. Well, strange from your point of view. But ancient readers knew exactly what was going on. The ancient kingdoms around Israel claimed to be founded and protected by giant warrior kings who were part human, part God, and filled with divine wisdom. Ah, I see. So the biblical authors are saying, hey, those warrior kings, they shouldn't be honored. Right. In this story, they're portrayed as human rebels who are captive to spiritual evil, spreading their violence in God's good world. Yeah, and one of those kings in Genesis 10 goes on to build the city of Babylon. Yes, Nimrod, whose name sounds like the Hebrew word for rebel. And his kingdom leads to the next rebellion, where humans exalt themselves in Babylon. But God scatters that rebellion. And when Moses in Deuteronomy looks back at that story, he says that's the moment when God handed over the nations to worship the rebel host of heaven, the gods of money, sex, and military power. Moses is the first one to call them demons, that is, lesser spiritual beings. So demons are spiritual forces at work behind corrupt human power structures. Yes, but in the Bible, they also work on the personal level, animating and exploiting humanity's greed and selfishness, as well as the weakness of our mortal bodies. In the Bible, spiritual evil is at work in anything that drags God's good creation back into chaos, darkness, and death. So this is why when Jesus arrives on the scene, he said his primary enemy is not human. Right. Jesus and his first followers viewed all the pain and suffering in God's good world as a sign of its captivity to death and spiritual evil. But they didn't think this was the end of the story. Right. Jesus knew that the only way out of this cosmic ruin is to overcome evil and death itself, even if it costs him everything. Five things that the text invites us to think about at a pretty high level as it relates to spiritual warfare in the life of a Christian. I'm going to go through these five, but I'm just going to lay them out right now. The first is that the Christian life is warfare. You need God's power. You have a part to play. Know your enemy and his strategies, and you will overcome if you stand firm in Christ. So let's look at the, the first one. The Christian life is warfare. That is the presupposition of verses 10 all the way through to 17. How many people, by a show of hands, have discovered that the Christian life is one of warfare? Yeah. Why warfare? Because we are saved from sin, from death and destruction, from condemnation, not just um, we are saved from that into a new life and a new purpose. Our sins are forgiven, yes, but it's more than that. We are given God's spirit. We now have a new agenda, a new mission in the world. But there are forces that exist in the spiritual realm that are anti-God's agenda. How many of you have noticed that since becoming a Christian, your life seems to have gotten more difficult? Anyone notice that pattern? I have noticed it in my life. I like what Timothy Keller says. He says, think about it this way. Before coming to Christ, you only had one enemy. You were only at enmity against one being, and that was God. 
but God loved you and he died for you. And he was willing to work all things to draw you to himself. But once you become a Christian, you now gain a new set of enemies, uh, plural. Because now there are forces which are allied against you. But they don't love you. And they don't have your best interest at heart. And so I've met many and counseled many Christians who haven't understood why their life in some ways is pretty smooth and easygoing before they became a Christian. Now they've become a Christian, everything seems to have been turned up to an 11 in terms of challenge. And they're kind of thinking, well, maybe I didn't think this, like I didn't say this out loud, but I kind of thought being a Christian would make my life easier because God's on my side. And it does in some ways because you have access to a new power. But we shouldn't be naive to think that once we partner and ally and claim, and claim Jesus as our king, that all of those forces which refuse to bow the knee to the name of Jesus begin to actively work against us. We gain a new set of enemies. The Bible calls that, broadly speaking, the Satan, the adversary, the enemy, and his demons. They want to figure out how to keep you far from God, how to entice you away from God, how to divert you on your mission to obey and to fulfill God's purposes in your life, us as a church, or working on the individual level, congregational level, societal levels. This is why you'll notice all kinds of new challenges coincidentally emerge, even if you just make a new spiritual goal in your life, right? Oh, I've been really slack in this area. I'm going to like start, like starting tomorrow. For sh- like I'm, I'm setting an appointment, 7 a.m. I'm just going to get into scripture. You watch what happens at 6.55 a.m., right? You know this, right? I'm totally going to go to church. I, you know, this, I'm, 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 I need to, I've just been a little bit casual and slack in that area. I really want to re-engage. You watch what happens on Sunday mornings now. When we set our face towards obedience and following Jesus, you will notice that there seems to be all these little speed bumps that seem to be running interference on your life. And the Bible says we should expect that because the Christian life is warfare. If you are sincerely trying to follow Jesus in your life, Monday through Sunday, there will be active opposition at the personal level, in your marriage, family, um, community. The Bible teaches us to recognize that and to accept it and to be prepared for it and to embrace the good news that comes through this passage. So one thing to understand is that if you are a Christian, you need to expect your life is going to be challenging because you have been saved into the army of God, the literal salvation army. And we have a counter army of forces that are marshalling against us. Understand and accept this truth so that you won't be perpetually confused as to why you're under continual or consistent attack as you continually lean into greater faithfulness, greater holiness, greater obedience to what God calls you to do. You just learn to accept it after a while. Identify it and then stand in God's power to overcome it. Number two, you need God's power. Verse 10 says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is not a call to summons your own Uh, willpower resources. This is a fight that we need God's power to overcome. The passive form of the verb, which is be strong, indicates that this is an empowering that is done to Christians. It's not something that you do to yourself. And the present tense 
shows that the intention here is to see it as um, continually be strong. It's not something that happens once. I did it. I said a prayer. I went to a special prayer meeting. I had these people pray over me, and I was strong in the Lord. It's a continual strengthening. So it's something that God has to do in us, and it's something that we need to understand needs to be a continual practice and pattern in our lives. We need to be strong continually in the Lord, knowing his strength, learning how to draw closer to him, how to um, access the resources that he has for us spiritually. And we'll get into the details of what that means in the coming weeks. But again, just recognize you cannot fight spiritual battles with your own kind of um, strategies and, and just simply willpower. You're not going to willpower your way to overcome the, the spiritual nature of the forces allied against you. Number three, notice that Paul says, you have a part to play. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Up to this point in Ephesians, he has told the church, this is what God has given you. This is what you have. You are in Christ. But notice here he says, he doesn't presume they're wearing the full armor of God. You need to put it on. And it's a really interesting thing here, because when we often think about that, we think about that at the individual level. But in a few weeks, I'll talk about the fact that, again, Paul is talking to the church. You need to put on the armor. And there's an interesting uh, insight there because no person, you know, um, Roman soldiers at this time, you can't put the armor on yourself. You have to have someone else helping you put the armor on. So it's a call to help each other put on the armor of God. Armor each other up. It's not just an individualistic sense of, oh, I'm putting on the armor of God. I'm going out to battle by myself. No, we have a legion here of the kingdom of God. Help put the armor on each other, and then go out into battle together. But you have a responsibility to play. Victory is not automatic. You've been given many things in Jesus, but God will not put this armor on. You need to, he wants to give it to you, but you have to put it on. You have to do something. Our God is victorious over the powers of sin and death and the devil, but if we walk out into our everyday lives in clothes, regular clothes, instead of armor, we shouldn't be surprised to find ourselves continually battered and beaten up by what is thrown at us. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 21.31, the horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. See, faith does not mean I trust God so much, I don't have to do anything. See how big my faith is? I don't have to do any preparation. I don't have to read the Bible. I, I just, I don't even have to sometimes even pray because I'm just trusting in God so much. The Bible from front to, uh, from beginning to end, it says, no, no, that's not the way faith works. You prepare, you know, Martin Luther said, work as if everything depended on you and pray as if everything depended on God. That's a bit of a false dichotomy, obviously. But the kernel of the idea there is when you're getting ready for war, you get your equipment ready for war. You train the horses, you train sword fighting, you practice, right? A Christian athlete doesn't say, I trust God so much for victory that I don't even need to show up to practice, no, that's sinful. That's presumptive. That's putting the Lord your God to the test. You work as hard as you can. You prepare as well as you can. And then you show up knowing that all of that hard work, all of your preparation will only get you so far. And victory is ultimately in the hands of God. And so you trust God after you've prepared for battle. Faith doesn't mean, uh, having great faith doesn't allow you to escape personal responsibility of preparedness. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Number four, the text compels us to know our real enemy and his schemes. 
Verse 11 says, put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul wants them to understand that your enemy is not at bottom, at the end of the day, other human beings or other um, political movements or other social institutions. They can be used as conduits of evil, but that's not the level of the battle that Christians are called to engage in. They're called to not be fooled by trying to engage on that level and think that they're defeating evil when they you know, literally fight against other people or simply try and um, alter at a social level some of the different pieces in play. He says, there are cosmic powers that preside over this present darkness. Some of your translations will say, um, over this dark world. I don't like that translations. I know why they do that. It's because there's a word here that literally translates um, world ruler. But I think the translation um, doesn't have enough interplay when it just does literal there with how that word was used. Because if we, here's my hesitation, and this is why I went with the ESV translation, which I think is better in this case. Sometimes if we talk about Satan and his demons as the ruler over um, this earth, this world, we can mistakenly think, oh, that means like over creation, over all that is. So it's basically God is just kind of seated, seated control over to Satan, and Satan kind of rules everything, and Satan has authority over all things, and God is just kind of like way sidelined up and away in heaven. And that's not really the idea. The idea is that there are dimensions of reality where God has given um, spiritual forces sway. And yes, when Jesus is tempted, Satan says, hey, if you worship me, I can give you over these kingdoms. And Jesus talks in the Gospel of John about how he describes Satan as the ruler of this world or the ruler of the air. But it's not meant to infer that Satan rules everything and God can't work because this is kind of Satan's territory. It's that Satan has dominion and God's kingdom is battling against it here and now. But we have to understand that our foe is serious. It's significant. And so this, this word is used in this text as a way to say, this is a really serious foe. We need to take it seriously. We need armor. We need each other. We need to be strong in God's power because we're not just dealing with little pixie demons who at their worst can just kind of annoy us. We are dealing with forces that can really do and sow seeds of tremendous discord and destruction in your life, in our life, in the world. The language here makes it really, really clear that the devil or the Satan doesn't always attack through obvious head-on assaults, but often uses strategy and cunning. Notice schemes of the devil. The Greek word there is stratagem, which means strategies, right? So this idea, this cartoon that we have in our mind of this horned devil with a pitchfork and going out and uh, directly harassing people, that's not really a biblical picture. It's a medieval picture, of how medieval uh, some thinkers thought about how the devil operates, but biblically, we're invited to think of something very, very different. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 11.14, Paul says to the Corinthians, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. 
See, Satan and these spiritual forces are sentient, they're intelligent, and they understand strategies, and they understand that if they were to show up looking evil, even for people who aren't on the side of God, they're going to be freaked out by that. So most of the time, how they want to present is rationable, reasonable, attractive, beautiful, enticing, right? There's nothing in the story in the Garden of Eden that makes it seem that it was like some monstrous entity tempting Eve. It's the serpent can come, and she's kind of like, yeah, I'd give this guy a hearing. Like, I want to see what he has to say. Evil rarely looks evil until, accomplishes, until it accomplishes its goal. And so we have to understand that our enemy is one who uses schemes and strategies. And he does so in a way that at first pass usually looks kind of reasonable to us, kind of attractive. Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way before. Yeah, that kind of makes a good point. Yeah, did God really say we shouldn't eat of that? Why did God say that? Yeah, maybe this is all just about keeping us down and keeping us from like the good life. Maybe God is sort of this divine tyrant and everything, he's, he's posturing like he wants to bless and love us and care for us, but that's all just a ruse and he's really a tyrant of heaven. Yeah, I'm, I'm listening to this guy. The two primary strategies that the devil uses throughout all of scripture are lies and accusation. Lies and accusation, or put another way, or sorry, lies and slander. Or put another way, temptation and accusation. And the nature of temptation is really ultimately a lie, Satan telling you a lie. I know you've been told that you're not supposed to do this, but do you really think the rules apply to you? You've done a lot. You've earned this. You deserve this. No one's going to find out. Did God really say, like, do you think that really applies to this situation? Maybe you've just misunderstood. No one can be good all the time. And you know what? We all need a release valve. You've been really holding down the fort awesome over here. Is it really going to be that big a deal if you just kind of let things go over here? Right? Satan doesn't show up in our lives with boogeyman, scary, I'm here to attack you. We would arm up. We would, we would identify it. We would know. He uses strategies. He tempts us with lies. And if that doesn't work, then he keeps us down through accusation, through slander, by repeating things to us that are untrue and that go against gospel hope. You're guilty. You're shameful. You're praying to God. Do you think you're showing up to church today after what you did last night, after what you've done? Or you think you can just say a prayer and Jesus is going to magically forgive you? Jesus doesn't forgive people like you. Jesus doesn't use people like you. Like, oh, you think you have access to God? Really? Right? Slander. Undercutting what God says about you. You think you're a child of God? No, you've got to earn that. Maybe one day you will, but not all right now. You should be filled with shame. I can't believe that someone like you would presume to try and lead your children, lead your spouse, be a leader in the church, be a pastor. Are you kidding me? So lies and slander are the two primary strategies. We'll look at a few more over the coming weeks, but that's important to understand. That often the attacks don't come as these direct uh, frontal assaults. They come as a whisper, as come over here, check this out, think about this from a different perspective. Has God really said, do you really think God's calling you to do this? I don't know. 
Like, look at your past. Look at who you are. And Paul says, this is the nature of the enemy. This is the enemy that actually we're fighting against. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The word wrestle there literally means wrestle. It means on the ground grappling. He says, as the church, we're not wrestling against other people. And this is written during a time where there was persecution from Rome. Significant persecution. But Paul says, again, don't get fooled by that. Look behind that. Look, understand the actual nature of our struggle. It's against spiritual beings that are anti-God in the heavenly realms. And that doesn't mean up, up, far and away. It means this present darkness in the spiritual unseen realm. Cosmic powers over this present darkness. I think it's a better translation of the word cosmocrator, world ruler. Because it gets at this idea that this darkness, the, the, the existence that those who are anti-God and are ignorant of God, un, don't know his ways, are blinded to the truth, Satan is the ruler of them. Not that they are Satanists, they're not intentional, but Satan, in a sense, has dominion over all that uh, God does not. There's a kingdom of God and the kingdom of the enemy. Lastly, there's a promise here, and it's really, really substantial. You will overcome the strategies of the evil one. You will overcome the force of pressure and exertion against you if you stand firm in Christ. Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all that to stand. And the evil day, commentators go back and forth. They're not sure whether this is referring to a particular day that all Christians are going to face who are alive, that it is particularly evil, or whether it um, just refers to a day that will come into your life because you're a Christian of where there's going to be great evil. In the same way that, um, you know, I might say to my kids, hey, you're going to need this piece of knowledge for one day in the future. You know, one day in the future, you're going to need this. It's like, are you talking about like one, like one actual day? It's like, no, it's, it's more to mean like at some point, you're going to face days and situations and events that are particularly um, against God's purposes in your life. And so we need to put on the full armor of God so that when that day comes, not if it comes, you having done all of this, you'll be able to stand. And that is the promise that um, whatever we talk about in terms of elevating and understanding the nature and scope of power of the demonic or of spiritual forces, for a Christian, those should not be things that um, should cause us to kind of buckle down into fear. That's not the point of this passage. Paul is on the one hand saying, look at the nature of these forces. They're cosmic rulers and their powers and their authorities. He's using intentionally exaggerated language in order to underscore, but you know what? They're no, they're no match for you if you stand firm in Christ. The worst that the enemy has to bring against you, God has already provided a means for you to stand under. So don't live uh, shrinking back from God's purposes in your life because you can and you will overcome if you stand firm in Christ. Every action should be geared towards this end. The verb here means to stand firm or to accomplish something or to overcome after a battle. So it's this idea that, you know, you're going 12 rounds as a boxer. Boxer, someone's going to be left standing and someone's going to be on the mat. And Paul is saying to the church, 
against these spiritual forces, as serious and real and as crafty as they are, you can be the one standing every time if you learn to stand firm in Christ and put on the whole armor of God. In God's power, with God's armor, standing firm in Christ, you can withstand the assaults of evil. And that's at the individual level, in your marriage, again, uh, on every level, uh, socially, parenting, all of it, as a community of faith, as a global church. Now, what does it mean to put on the full armor of God? That's where it kind of will go over the next few weeks. Look a little bit more at the strategies of the enemy. Dive a little bit deeper into pragmatically how do we live into this, what might come to us as kind of a strange kind of warfare worldview where we're kind of moving into reality being like, I don't really experience in some ways my Monday through Fridays is like warfare. Like I don't have problems, but I don't know. We'll kind of wrestle through all those things together. But what I want you to remember is to keep the big picture in mind as we move into this topic. The, the Christian life is one of warfare. You need God's power. You have a part to play. You need to know your real enemy and become familiar with his strategies against you and to hold and live into the promise that you will absolutely overcome if you stand firm in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your power and your grace in our lives and for this passage in Ephesians, which gives us really important insight into the nature of evil and the external evil that does seek to lead us astray in all kinds of different ways. And I pray for those, um, those of us who, for whom some of these ideas are either new or they just really seem untenable. They're just like, I can't get there. I, maybe people have such a, uh, such a predisposition to say, if I can't see it and, and measure it and verify it through scientific methodology, it doesn't make sense to me. But I really pray, God, that through your word, you would give us uh, insight into this spiritual dimension and how we can very practically integrate that knowledge into our everyday faith life in a way that is genuinely integrative and holistic and actually helps us better love you and serve those around us. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Jeff.